You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production. Before Greg O'Shea became an in-demand music producer and sound engineer, he started work at Metropolis Audio in the dubbing room. Although it wasn't the most glamorous position, Greg saw it as an opportunity and grabbed it with both hands. After his first job, he continued to develop his skills and ended up focusing on studio recording. Because of his experiences, he got to work with major acts like John Farnham, In Excess, Crowded House and Neil Diamond. In this episode, Greg O'Shea gives us an inside look into the early part of his career and how it led to him starting his own music production company. So Greg, you're interning at Metropolis. When was the point where they said, you know what, we like this kid, we're going to give you a full-time job? Surprisingly, it was six weeks. There was another guy, he came from the same audio college, but for some reason he decided maybe it wasn't for him, that job. I'm not sure if he saw the opportunity the same way I did. Like, yes, you're working, uh, getting lunches and teas and coffees and all that, but I knew where it was heading to. Like, you know, you would eventually get into the studio. So for some reason he decided to finish up his job and it just happens that I was at that time there and they said, we like you, Um, would you like to take the job? And I said, yep, straight away. I just didn't think about it. So that was within six weeks, which surprised me. It surprised my lecture as well, because now suddenly, you know, nine months into my audio engineering course, I've got now a full-time job at the Mecca, you know, <laughs> Metropolis Audio, and he and everyone's, you know, kind of revering it, going, wow, this, this kid's already got a job at the big place. Did you feel as though you wanted to finish the study, or you just knew the opportunity of the Metropolis was far too good, that's where your attention needed to be? I did have to finish my study. I, I wanted to finish it, and I, I felt, because it gave you the real grounding in the all the core sort of skills, you know, and I knew that was going to really be helpful to set me up at Metropolis. And um, I just had the advantage of recording my demos, which I had to do with with a band. I got to record those in Metropolis instead of at the small studio at, at the Australian Audio College. So I had a slight advantage because I had, you know, Neumann microphones, these amazing consoles and things. And my teacher, Rod, was, you know, he did call that out and said, you know, just just remember you've got a little bit of an advantage <laughs> with the equipment. He was, you know, obviously really wrapped that I'd managed to get there. And um, that next three or four months I was, I was doing the work at Metropolis, but it was becoming harder to go to the classes because I was in the studio, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day at least. I imagine in the full-time role, you've gone beyond just serving the coffees and the teas. What were you actually doing now? Yeah, the pathway they had was, it was clever. They they used to have a, a thing called a dubbing room, which, and this is back when we're talking about analogue tape. So we would have a bunch of two-track tape machines. And so we had three recording studios that were more specifically for music, music studios, and two post-production studios. So they would do all the advertising, uh, radio and TV commercials. So that's where all the voiceovers and, you know, sound effects, all that sort of stuff would be put together. And primarily those clients would be advertising agencies. So the dubbing room, our job mainly was to do multiple dubs of that commercial and then it would get put onto this little reel of tape and then sent off uh, by courier to all the radio stations around the country. So we would routinely have to dub off, say it was a Kmart commercial, we might have to dub 80 copies of it and send them out. And we'd have to do that within about two hours, so like a 30 second commercial. So you, you'd have to learn to do this little announcement on the microphone, it was called, you know, you'd give it a, a station ID to tell 
the radio station, what the commercial was, the key number, all these things. And so you're running five or six tape machines at once, hitting record, chopping up the tape, getting it all going. So it's kind of like grassroots audio engineering, learning how to get really good levels, learning how to wind the tape on, all that stuff, then package it up, do the writing. So you're kind of you're learning the basic skills of being an assistant engineer. And I guess the path from there is then you, then you get put in on an album session and that's when you're sort of dedicated to that project as the assistant engineer. So in an album setting, what do you do? A lot of things. You were first in, last out. You had to be there to line up the tape machines. There was a, a procedure to get the tape machine in alignment for recording with the technical specifications. You would prepare the recording console. You'd get all the microphones out for the engineer. If there was a producer, you were basically there to serve their goals for the session. Primarily, you were there to work as the eyes and ears for the engineer. And so whenever you could sense that there was going to be a change that they wanted to do a guitar overdub soon, you would get out on the recording floor and get that ready, get the microphones. Like you always had to be thinking a step ahead to become a good assistant and then to become a good engineer. And, you know, an engineer is just constantly dealing with requests and information coming from everyone. You're the, the centre piece of it all. You've got the producer, you've got the band, you've got everyone sort of asking things. So you're doing a lot of that, you're patching the equipment in and you're just making sure the session's running smoothly from a technical and creative standpoint for, for the, the band and the producer. How long were you at Metropolis for? Uh, five years, probably five and a half. By the time I actually left, I went freelance the last year. I was still doing work there. And then I moved on to a post-production studio for a couple of years. So what studio was that and uh, what was the role? That was Good Audio Sense. And I was still doing some freelance work at Metropolis doing film and a couple of album things. But predominantly the Good Audio Sense was doing radio and TV commercials. So that formative training I had really helped where we were largely recording voiceovers and putting the sound effects together. And I would, by that time, I was mixing those and recording uh, the music soundtracks. There was a composer that I worked with who was in there doing a lot of the compositions for the radio and TV. And we, we did do some film stuff as well. We do some film sound design and dialogue editing and things like that. So it was largely in that space. So mainly for the advertising agencies and for some film companies. At what point did you become a music producer? It was a bit like, when do you become an engineer? So I think it's when you say you are one. But having started at Metropolis, there was a real hierarchy. You were an assistant because it was a proper system. So it was probably not till I moved to Canada and I was genuinely now working as an engineer, a producer. You're kind of doing everything because I was working in a smaller studio that just you didn't have an assistant engineer or a producer to work with, so you had to become all those things. Well, what was the opportunity that took you over to, to Canada? You know, that's a complete overhaul of your life. What, what took you there? There was always an interest. To me, it seemed the big time was North America and the UK. That's where the music industry, you know, it, it, in my mind it was Los Angeles, New York, London, maybe Paris at that time. They might have been the, the big cities where music happened. Canada wasn't necessarily in the radar, but I had an uncle that lived in Vancouver. So I had always had an interest in Canada, but never thought about living there. When I got to North America, I met a couple of great Canadian guys. We went to Toronto. What had happened when I got to, first got to Toronto, I'd realised really quickly that this was a great music city and it was, you know, you'd open the local paper and there was the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Shirley Bassey and some amazing reggae artists all playing the same night in the same city. And this is, this is 
98, 97, 98. That didn't happen in Australia at that time. Like the festival circuit we have now, we just didn't have that. So you just didn't have those choices of options of artists, you know, from every kind of walk of, uh, of music all being available to you. So that was exciting to start. And then knowing that you were just across the border from New York, Anyway, to the short answer is I went out to Vancouver when I was going to see my uncle, was staying in a hostel, I met a Canadian girl, fell for her and that sort of led to me making a big decision of just really following my instinct. I came back to Australia briefly for about a month and thought, you know what, I'm just going to give this a go, going to give this relationship a go and I'm going to get a job in a studio over there and kind of the same process I did at 18 ringing all the studios, I did the same thing again. If I know anything about young kids, particularly students, they want to know that there's opportunities in their career overseas. Uh, is there in the music industry and, and how can they kind of uh, direct their attention towards living and perhaps maybe studying or working overseas? I think if you go into it with the idea of I want this job and I want this and only this, then you might find it hard to break in. Sometimes you need to break in from a side or an angle that you... It might be where you want to end up, but it's going to get you started. And what happened for me with that was I contacted all these studios and I wasn't initially getting a response that they were immediately interested or that there was a position available. And that's fair enough because most studios, you know, by and large have got a core amount of people and that's how it is. But I did get a great response from a guy that ran a live concert recording, recording truck. He was the premier guy, a guy called Doug McClement, and he ran a company called Livewire Remote Recorders. During my initial reaching out to people, he'd said, listen, I, I do live stuff, I don't do studio, but you seem like you're a good kid. You've got lots of, I had, at that point, I'd had five years experience in at Metropolis, so I had a lot of names, if you like, you know, big names that I'd worked with and, and that experience working in a premier studio. So he knew I was of a certain pedigree and he'd, he was teaching also at an audio college in Toronto. So he was also impressed, I think, that I just reached out. He said, that's unusual that someone would do that from the other side of the world and because I just knew that I wanted to hit the ground running by the time I landed in Toronto. So I did this two or three months before I got there, just contacting. When I got there, he said, listen, I've got some work coming up that you might be able to just assist me on. If you're interested, it's live concert recording. And I just said, yep, I'm up for it. That sort of opened the first door. It's really interesting with you, Greg, because um, you talk about if you go back to your education days, you got a job with Metropolis or an internship relatively easy. You've moved to the other side of the world and found a job with not a lot of difficulty. What is it about you that makes you employable? I think I've always been a people person. I think my dad said to me when I was a kid, you know, if you can learn to be a good communicator, you'll get along really well in life. And he, he seemed to always say that to me that, you know, communication skills are really important in anything you do because if you communicate really well, and I think the big part of that is also that you, you're a really good listener, you know, you need to listen. More so in, in that industry, listen twice as much as you talk, you know, because that helped. And I suspect just being a pretty ambitious kid as well. I, I, I can see that when I look back that I I had a sort of drive in me that I don't know where that comes from, but it's there. And but just a keenness to learn. My dad's a very curious person. My mum always did have a, an attitude of you've got a tongue, use it. So meaning don't be shy to, you know, put yourself forward, you know. Even though I was shy for some reason, it doesn't make sense. In those instances, I never thought of things not working out. I thought, well, I'm just, I'm just going to give this a go. 
Now, given the position you've got, you're a, a business owner, when those kids are coming through, what are you looking for in them that says, yeah, this is someone that I've got to hire? Initially, it's, it's attitude. For me, it's always attitude. An ability to take things on, I guess, initially, as we, we said earlier, in, in that intern capacity, you've got to be a self-starter because most people these days will probably find that the pathway to studio jobs doesn't exist as it did you're pretty much becoming your own small business, so a self-initiative. Let's talk arena music. That's your business. How did you identify the opportunity? Again, that was a little bit of uh, I landed in the right place at the right time, I guess, but I'd come back from Canada. I'd been living and working there for about six years, producing records and things, and I'd come back to take a little bit of a break from, you know, I'd spent a long time in... I'd been in studios from 19 to about 35, so I'd been a long time in that world and I felt like I needed a little bit of a break from that and I was interested in doing something live and it just happened some other good friends who did, I did some audio mixing for radio and TV commercials. They said, hey, we're looking, well, the company literally downstairs is looking for a music producer for the cricket and I, I thought, okay, that's unusual. I'd, it does sound strange. Yeah, it yeah. seems a bit strange. And being a real cricket fan from my childhood, my, my grandfather used to take me to the games when I was a kid, I initially thought, why would you have music in the cricket? That seems silly. They said, no, they'll, they'll send you to Darwin. They want you to play some music at, at this one-day cricket match. And, and no one was really giving me the real details. It was like there was three or four middlemen between the client Cricket Australia and then this company. And I, I said, but what does the client want? They said, don't worry, you'll work it out. You'll be great. I said, no, but what do they want? And... So in classic me fashion, I completely overprepared and I edited about 500 songs into little stings like ACDC songs. I thought, well, who would go to the cricket? I said, okay, it's this sort of audience. I was thinking in my head, like, what sort of demographic it is? And, and then I thought, okay, if it's Darwin where we're going, maybe, you know, classic rock will work. And so that sort of initially, it was, I thought it was just going to be a one-off thing. The guys had initially said to me, look, just go up and do these three games and, and that's what it is. When I got there, a similar thing, I guess, happened where the event director for Cricket Australia walked over and said, what was that song you just played? And I thought, oh, no, what have I done? Something wrong. And it was, it was Back in Black by ACDC, but I'd edited it so it, it came in on the riff. You know, it was just like the big sort of exciting chorus. And I, I figured, because you only get like 20 to 30 seconds to make a music moment happen in between, you know, when they hit the ball to the boundary, right, you've got to have it. And I thought it's got to be like theatre. It's got to be, you know, big moment. And he came over and he goes, that was really cool. And I said, oh, okay. He goes, what's your name? I said, Greg. And he goes, righto, okay. Within a week or so, they said, well, can you come on tour and do the one day matches? And then fast forward, then T20 cricket evolved and was just being born, if you like, in this country and they asked me to design a music program to go with that. Fast forward again, then it, the opportunity was, I was asked, would I work directly for Cricket Australia, not for the company, but as a contractor. And that was when I started thinking, okay, maybe I might be a good time for me to set this up as a company and doing music for these sporting events. Really positive, and you can see the opportunity that's in front of you, but that's not a business. How did you set it up to actually turn an idea into something that would you know, generate an income? You could build a team around and you'd have a steady supply of customers. Certainly still building. It's only about four years old, that name. I think my individual sole trader name of, you know, of, of Greg O'Shea was 
how I, I worked for that first six or seven, or probably more actually, probably eight years. And it's the last four years. So I think once we started doing work for all the BBL teams, you know, we had eight teams who were doing work for, I thought, okay, to be honest, it was actually advice I'd received from a mentor, a business mentor, who said, you'd be wise to put this into a company name instead of your own name, because you won't be able to grow beyond a certain point. I took that on board. He'd suggested that and he just said it'll open up your opportunities about who you can work for but also who can work for you and how you could grow this business. And so that's starting to make sense because we're getting a bit more of a reputation now in the industry. Like it's, we're still fairly unique in the events industry being a music specialist. It takes a bit of time to build that client base. So we're still building but we've got the World Cup under our belt last year. So we, we, it's, we're starting to get some runs on the board with that now too. You've been in the coalface seeing bands, seeing cricketers. You'd have a really good sense of what makes a team work. What is it? I'd still say communication is always the first thing, but it's, it's, I think in collaboration you do something better than you can do on your own. I think you get the multiple points of view, you get multiple skill sets combining, you know, and it's that thing of the sum is is greater than the individual, you know, in most situations and, and usually in bands, there's always one or two generally very talented musicians, but it often is the case there's usually one standout talent and three or four people that have to be very workmanlike to support that person. I mean, it, that's true in cricket teams obviously too. You know, you've, you've got usually one or two star performers, but you need the team to lift and get the whole thing to work. So I think it's a lot of that collaborative nature, working for each other. You're not working for your own agenda. You're working as a team for something greater than you on your own. You've also gone back uh, and become a lecturer to help students through their um, audio engineering degrees. What are you doing there? Well, I, I did about six years of that until I really sort of moved the focus back to arena music. So I was doing that on the side, mainly live and studio production. So it's teaching kids how to do live sound and get up and running mixing live bands. So that sort of mentoring and then in the studio side, teaching editing and production. And it's interesting, a lot of that side is teaching them, I think what I would call studio etiquette, which was those things that we learnt very early on. Again, communicate with, with the artist. A lot of the skill of producing music really comes down to directing talent and communicating with them and how to draw performance out of them and that takes a lot of skill around understanding the mood of the room, where the person's at, being sensitive to their environment and how they're feeling. Largely the core skills, the, the foundational skills of engineering and producing. The future of your industry, is it positive? Two or three years ago, I think a lot of people would have been saying, I'm not sure. I really think it is. I feel like we're going through a rebirth of music in general. In It's taken 20 years for us to understand how the new ecosystem is going to work with streaming. And now that's pretty settled. You know, most of the streaming platforms are largely in place and we know that that's the way we consume music. And I think the visual side of the industry is also really a big part of the future. It's it's not just audio anymore. It's, it's going to be visual because of, what have we got, 5.5 billion phones on the planet. So everyone consumes music and they still look at things as well. So it's, I, think it's, I think the combination of those things coming together is probably where audio is opening up. So how do you think students coming through can play their part in the industry? I think there's a number of paths now. I think you'll find a multimedia skill set will serve people really well. Like if you've got video skills 
as well as audio skills, you might find that you can branch out into a number of different areas. I mean, I think record labels are starting to, from what I'm seeing, they're re-employing and it's a lot more about content creation. So there's more pathways opening up. It mightn't just be specifically just engineering in and of itself. Content creation is just such a huge part of where we're all heading now because of the digital landscape, you know. Greg O'Shea, fantastic to talk to you and hear your story. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Because of evolving technology, there are now more opportunities for students to consider a career in music and sound production. With hard work, a passion for the craft and extra effort to study new skills like content creation and video editing, students can pursue a successful career in this field. As Greg O'Shea mentioned, students play a huge role in music and live streaming, and it's up to you how you plan to contribute to the industry. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production.